she accomplished quite a few things in her life, things we haven't even touched on. For example, the Relief Society magazine that she also started. She was involved with work at BYU, and she just has so many accomplishments that she's put together. If she was to have a building named after her, (laughs) what type of building would that be? What kind of memorial would be appropriate? You know, it would depend on what period of her life you were focusing in on. I think she would have answered that question differently at different times. But certainly by the end of her life and by the the last three decades or so of her life, it would definitely have been about genealogy and temple works. So maybe the Family History Library over on West Temple ought to be renamed as the Susie Young Gates Memorial Library because uh, that would be a fitting tribute to her. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the LDS Perspectives Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Galetti. This episode's guest is Lisa Tate. Lisa Tate is a historian and writer specializing in women's history at the Church History Library. She earned a Ph.D. in American Literature and a graduate certificate in Women's Studies from the University of Houston. Her dissertation was a study of the Young Women's Journal, focusing on generational and gender dynamics in 1890s Mormondom. She has published articles in several academic journals and on LDS.org. She is working on a biography of Susa Young Gates and researching the history of the Young Women's Program. She serves on the Executive Committee of the Mormon Women's History Initiative Team and on the board of the Mormon History Association. She has four children, the youngest of whom is a daughter with special needs. She lives in Highland with her daughter, her husband, Mike, and their two dogs, Axel and Rose. So welcome, Lisa Tate. Thank you for coming in. Thanks. Good to be here. So Axel and Rose, one of you must be a Guns N' Roses fan. <laughs> Actually, not at all. None. Our, uh, we had Rose first, so when we got another dog, we wanted something that would go with Rose. And so that just seemed like a good combination. A natural fit. Okay, <laughs> yeah. well, why not? Yeah, and he's about as big of a mess as Axel Rose, so it, it's worked out <laughs> it's well. It's appropriate. Yeah. All right. You also serve on this executive committee of a Mormon Women's History Initiative. It's a fairly unknown effort. So why don't you tell us what that is and what you do with that? It's an independent group of scholars and others who are interested in women's history. It was founded years ago by Jill Durr, Carol Madsen, some of the founding mothers of Mormon Women's History. And we operate under a couple of metaphors. We consider ourselves a hub for networking among scholars and people who are working on Mormon women's history projects, and then as a bridge to the community. So we sponsor, two or three times a year, we sponsor events in the community where authors come and talk about their books, or we have some some other kind of event highlighting Mormon women's history. And then each year at the Mormon History Association conference, we sponsor a breakfast where we usually have a speaker, we highlight work in the field, and it's an opportunity for people to network in and get to know each other and, and about what we do. You can find us on Facebook. We we have a pretty f- active presence on Facebook at our page called I Love Mormon Women's History. Okay. So go and like us there, and you'll get <laughs> announcements about our events. You can go to our website as well, which you can link to from the Facebook page, and fill out our form to be on our contact list, and we send out a newsletter a couple of times a year as so well. So what, what do you do there? So I'm on the executive committee, and... We're in charge of kind of steering and 
visioning and setting policy and doing some of the high-level planning. And then we have a larger team that we work with to implement our plans and, and pull off our events and decide what we want to do. Last year at the Mormon History Conference, we staged a really successful bazaar as a fundraising effort. So we're looking to invigorate our fundraising efforts, and we'd like to get to where we could offer grants and a little bit of support oh. to scholars. So if the listeners couldn't tell by now, this is a, definitely a passion of yours, yeah. Mormon women's history. When did you start getting into that? Well, I guess in some ways you'd say I grew up with it because I had a grandmother who was very historical-minded, and so I learned the stories of my own forebears and, and the women of, of my Mormon history. Academically, I became involved when I was working on my master's degree at BYU a little over 20 years ago. That was when I first started discovering some of the sources and the materials, and I didn't think about it so much self-consciously as Mormon women's history until I got into my Ph.D. work and started doing feminist theory and history and women's literary history and so forth and just developing a more self-conscious awareness of what women's history is and, and how to do it and what it means. And I imagine that naturally brought you to Susa Young Gates, who you're not only writing this biography about, but is the subject of the Revelations and Context essay that we're here to talk about. And that's on the section 138 in the Doctrine and Covenants. You've used Susa Young Gates to talk about this, which is, frankly, it's not an angle that I've ever heard anyone approach when talking about section 138. So we're going to be talking about her for the most part and how her life related with this. When did you first learn of her? Likewise, it was when I was working on my master's degree. I had a class with Dr. Art Bassett, who some old-timers will remember, about, I think he called it the Humanities and Territorial Utah. And one of the assignments was that we had to go down to the stacks in the basement of the HBLL at BYU and look at some 19th century Mormon periodicals. And so without knowing a thing, I just walked down and I pulled out the first volume of the Young Woman's Journal. This was the magazine that Sousa founded as the official magazine of the YLMIA in 1889. She edited it until 1900. And so I pulled that off the shelf and I just started reading. And there she was. She wrote the editorials. She was the defining voice of that magazine. As I'm thumbing through the pages, I came to this, I think it was an editorial or an article that she wrote where she was talking about clothing, dress, women's fashions, and so forth. And she writes about how her father, Brigham Young, used to teach that children should be put in a pair of unmarked garments from the time they were two years old so that they would be used to wearing them. And once I read that, I was like, okay, I need to know more about this person. This is, she just has this voice. And so I ended up doing my master's thesis on three of her novels that she wrote. And then from there, took that interest into my PhD studies. Okay. So we're going to have to try and mesh what we typically or traditionally understand as Section 138 with her biography. Now that we know a little bit about her, and I mean a very little bit because mm -hmm. there's quite a bit to know, Section 138 is unique amongst the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants in that, first of all, it was given through Joseph F. Smith on October 3rd, 1918, which of course is much after the original printing and version of the Doctrine and Covenants. So this section of Scripture is the foundation of doctrines regarding to the sphere of existence or the resurrection afterwards and what we call the spirit world, how work of the gospel continues there. While the doctrines and the verses of that revelation have become almost commonplace to the modern-day Latter-day Saints, what was the impact of this revelation to the saints, at least in general, at that time? 
Well, it was a time of quite a bit of interest and activity in genealogy and temple work, starting in the 1890s when the Utah Genealogical Society was formed, which was the church's official arm or auxiliary almost for genealogy. Those early decades of the 20th century were a time of a lot of push and emphasis and development of methods and knowledge and understanding and expertise in this field. And Sousa, of course, was one of the driving forces in making that happen. I think it's interesting to note that the doctrine taught in Section 138 was not entirely new. We can find clear back in 1844 in George Lobb's journal a record of Joseph Smith himself teaching about how those who die in the faith go to the prison of spirits to preach to the dead in body, but they are alive in the spirit and so forth. And Joseph F. Smith himself had taught this same idea and talked about it many times in the years before his death, particularly it was something that he had mentioned. While the doctrine itself is not entirely new, his vision gives an affirmation and just an expansive picture of this doctrine and also gives us a glimpse into what a profound experience this was for him to receive that vision. It was published in all of the church's periodicals within a few months after Joseph F. Smith died. Of course, it took some time for it to be canonized and make its way into because he into died. The he scriptures. died shortly after. He this. died, uh, yeah, about six weeks after yeah. the vision. When was it canonized? Do we know? It was added to the Doctrine of Covenants in the late seventies, or published, I think, in the in nineteen eighty one edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. So it's almost. 70 years later? But then, yeah, about 70 years after the vision is when it's canonized. Yeah. yeah. So your essay tells a story about how this revelation impacted Susan Young Gates. So how does this story of her life and the revelation in 138 come together? Well, in a few different ways. Susa was very passionate and interested in temple work from the time that she was quite young. She was one of the official recorders at the dedication of the St. George Temple in 1877 when she was 21 years old. She says in one of her recollections that she was the first woman baptized for the dead in that temple and also the first woman endowed for the dead. So, in that temple or period? Well, it would have been period because that was in the St. George Temple is when endowment work yeah. for the dead was initiated. So she says she was the first I'm not sure if we have records that would corroborate that. I don't know any reason to dispute it. I've read Wilford Woodruff's journal, and I know that she and her mother are mentioned as being in that first company. So it was a passion and something that she was very interested in. In the 1890s, she went back east and did a genealogy trip. She was corresponding with family members and with professional genealogists. It was just a, a major focus for her in her life. So that's one angle to it is this passion and interest that she had for genealogy and temple work. And she served as a temple worker herself for decades. The article talks about some of the activities that she did in promoting and developing genealogy and temple work. And she really is the most important Mormon woman you've never heard of in terms of <laughs> yeah. the reason that Latter-day Saints are known as experts and as having this focus on family history work. She was one of the driving forces in establishing that. 
But there's also an interesting background to her encounter with this revelation in her relationship with Joseph F. Smith himself. She would have known him, of course, from the time that she was young because he was known in the young household and he was about 18 years older than she was. So well, we should say that the young household being Brigham Young. Being Brigham Young's household, yes, where Sousa grew up in the Lion House. She was the first child born in the Lion House, actually, but not by far the first child of Brigham Young. <laughs> I think number 39 is what I've landed on. Yeah, from the 21st or 22nd wife or something. Uh, yeah, that's all really difficult to calculate. <laughs> yeah. But she came along when there was a whole lot of kids. She grew up with about 40 siblings, basically. So she would have known Joseph F. Smith, but they really became acquainted and became friends when both Sousa and her husband Jacob and then Joseph F. and his wife Julina were in Hawaii in the Sandwich Islands in Laie in the late 1880s. He was there, Joseph F. was there, basically hiding out from the federal marshals during the height of the raid, the anti-polygamy prosecutions, and he was an extremely wanted man because of his knowledge of the records, and he was in the first presidency and so forth. Sousa's husband, Jacob, had served a mission in Hawaii in the late 1870s and then was called to go back about 10 years later because they needed someone who could speak the language really well and who knew how to do sugar boiling because it was the sugar plantation. And not necessarily in that order. I think the sugar boiling was really important, and Jacob was an expert at that. So Sousa and their children went with him from late 85 to 1889. And so while they were there, they became acquainted with Joseph and Julina Smith in a really close-up way. But then that was intensified when in February of 1887, the Gateses lost two little boys within a week. Little Carl was three years old. Jay was five. And they both died of what they called the diphtheriatic croup Hmm. within a week of each other. It was an agonizing, wrenching experience for everyone there. And Joseph F. and Julina sat up with those children. They helped the Gates family. They all mourned and grieved together. Later, Joseph F. told them that he had actually had a dream when the first little boy died where he had seen a grave big enough for two and knew that the other one was going to be taken as well. And so 30 years later, he's still writing to Sousa about how that experience in the Sandwich Islands bonded their hearts together with bonds of steel, he says. So they became very close friends, and through the years then they kept up a a close correspondence, and it really was a friendship between Joseph F. and Sousa. He was very good friends with Jacob. Sousa was friends with all of his wives. But there was something special in that relationship between the two of them that she she wrote to him, he wrote to her. They had some really significant doctrinal discussions and personal relationship. And so that friendship had been very important to her over the years leading up to this time where he's basically on his deathbed and she gets to have this experience. Let's actually get into that because her connection to this is somewhat informed again by her love of genealogy and temple work. But then he has this revelation and decides to share it with her. What prompted that and how much of that was a sign of their relationship? You know, it's hard to know. The way that I found this was by finding the entry in her diary. And she was not a prolific diarist. She was a prolific writer in by every other measure. But she only kept a few short-lived diaries during her life. She happened to be keeping a diary at the time or at least in a diary that she kept 
towards this period, this was an experience that was so significant that she recorded it. The diary entry does seem to indicate that it was recorded at the time that it happened, so I think that's important. As it says in the article, it seems that Jacob and Sousa, who lived in Salt Lake at this time, not too far from the Beehive House where the Smiths lived, they simply had dropped by to pick up a box of apples that, for whatever reason, the Smiths, I think, had an orchard. And and in their letters, you'll see references to, to them sharing things like this back and forth. The Smiths will give the Gateses a turkey for Christmas, and there will be fruit exchanged and things like that. So it seems like it's a fairly commonplace thing. Very neighborly, at least. Yeah. Of course, during this period where they're living in close proximity to each other and where they're encountering each other regularly— Perhaps not this year when Smith has been sick a lot, but during this period, Susan's at the temple and she's working in the Relief Society and so forth. They're not writing letters to each other because they're seeing each other in person. And so it's harder to trace, you know, all the interactions as opposed to when there are letters. But I think that's a silent witness to the fact that they were still very good friends and were still seeing each other regularly. So the Gateses stopped by to get these apples and... Susa, of course, is friends, good friends with Julina and members of the family, and so she's visiting with them. And President Smith, who has been sick for most of the year, calls her into his room, and I think she has no idea what he is about to share with her. But I think it's a testament to the high esteem that he held her in, to the closeness of their friendship. And I think he also knew how important this would be to her, given her passionate, driving interest in promoting awareness and work in genealogy and, and in temple work. In fact, you mentioned in, in the article a few different quotes. I'm not sure of them, but there were some where she expressed some frustration that the saints seemed to be rather apathetic about temple history or temple work and family history. Yeah. Susa was every inch her father's daughter in being... <laughs> very outspoken in having strong opinions and in feeling like she could share them and and should. (laughs) So you do get some outspoken comments from her, but as you look, for example, in the Relief Society board minutes and things like that, you can see that it was this effort on trying to teach people how to do genealogy and then get them to take that to the temple and to do the temple work. It was kind of a new thing. It was something that required a lot of time, frankly, probably a lot of literacy at a time when I think people were generally literate, but I, it required some higher level skills that I think some of the women, you'll you'll see comments about how it's too complicated or they want the lessons simplified and so forth. I think Sousa felt discouraged. She felt like people could do it if they just would, if they would just get engaged with it. It's not that hard. And And she wore herself out trying to give them the tools and the expertise and the ability to do it. I think she was discouraged at times and and felt like she was waging almost a one-woman campaign. And I think especially she felt like the women needed to get on board. Why was that kind of more gender-specific? Just because that's where her influence was? Susa's whole life, her whole public life and much of her, her private internal work was focused on questions about gender. She grew up and came of age in this world that really saw gender as this fundamental dividing category in human existence and experience. It's been referred to by as separate spheres, for example. The idea that women have certain 
gifts and abilities and propensities and that both requires and entitles them to work within their own sphere. I think it was a way that she found an outlet and authority for her to do this public work where she wasn't a man, she wasn't an apostle, she wasn't a priesthood leader in the way that her brothers and the men could be. But this woman's fear gave her and many other women during this period a place where they could work and lead and teach and have great influence. How did she approach gender roles in her life? It's a really complex question. She was born and came of age and operated at a time when that idea of separate spheres was breaking down and in some ways and in other ways was really being enshrined. So there's a lot of conflicting impulses and ideas about gender in her world. But unquestionably, she grew up and lived and worked at a time when women's opportunities and education and just lives were expanding in exponential ways. And she witnessed that. And she advocated for it and participated in it. She felt that women should be equal to men. But then in the same breath, she would talk about how men are supposed to be the head. And true women are satisfied to let men be the head. And so she has some ideas there that we would now see as a little bit conflicting and that I think she is just a sign of how she was trying to work out these questions for herself in the backdrop of a world where there were so many new possibilities and so many things changing. It's always this question of what do we hold on to, how much of our previous paradigms are still valid, and, and how much do we change and adapt. She seems to have gotten a little bit more conservative as she got older. In her middle years, her 30s to 50s, she was out there advocating for women to do everything that men could do and so forth. And I wouldn't say that she necessarily backed down from that, but she did land in a place where she felt that gender was this central defining division between men and women, and not in an alienating way, but in a defining way that helped men know what they were supposed to be and what they were supposed to do, women know what they were and what they were supposed to do. This lens that we're talking about where she seemed to view even the scriptures, in particular this revelation, through the lens of what's the role of women. And in particular, there was a, a verse that you mentioned in the essay or that comes to mind where a, a verse stood out in the revelation about women specifically. What is that? It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's one verse in this long revelation, but it's verse 39 where President Smith is describing this vision of the different people that he is seeing. And he starts out with our father, Adam. And then he says, Our glorious mother Eve, with many of her faithful daughters who had lived through the ages and worshipped the true and living God. And Susa goes home after reading this that night. And in her diary, she rejoices. She talks about how she's so grateful to have Eve and her daughters remembered. And then when she publishes the article, she again focuses in on this verse about women. And she feels like it's an affirmation of the direct view of women associated with the ancient and modern prophets and elders confirms the noble standard of equality between the sexes, which has always been a feature of this church. And that was something that she repeated several times throughout her life. It was something that Joseph F. Smith himself had talked about. In 1911, 
he gave a fairly well-known, I guess in some circles, sermon at the funeral of a woman named Marianne Burnham Fries. She had been the stake president of the YLMIA in Salt Lake, the Salt Lake stake president, and was a longtime temple worker and just a really well-known woman and woman's leader in the late 19th century, and she died in 1911. And excerpts of this sermon that he gave were published in Gospel Doctrine and in other places. So some people may have heard this before, but he talks about how he's pondering, well, what is she going to be doing on the other side? What is this woman going to be doing? She spent her life working in the temple. She spent her life working among the women. And then he goes on to say, I've always believed and still do believe with all my soul the such men as Peter and James, and he mentions Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, that they're engaged on the other side in this work of redemption and in preaching the gospel. And then he continues, he says, Now among all these millions of spirits that have lived on the earth and have passed away from generation to generation since the beginning of the world without the knowledge of the gospel, among them you may count at least one half are women. Who is going to preach the gospel to the women? Who is going to carry the testimony of Jesus Christ to the hearts of the women who have passed away without a knowledge of the gospel? Well, to my mind, it is a simple thing. These good sisters who have been set apart, ordained to the work, called to it, authorized by the authority of the holy priesthood to minister for their sex in the house of God, the living and for the dead, will be fully authorized and empowered to preach the gospel and minister to the women while the elders and prophets are preaching it to the men. So this was a glimpse of how Susan and Joseph F. and the people of this generation saw gender as this defining and determinative thing on both sides of the veil. It's discussions like this that cause Sousa to rejoice in this idea that the gospel gives women full equality and the opportunity to work and participate in the work of salvation right alongside men. It may be a little different for women. Their assignments may be a little bit different, but there's an equality and a partnership between men and women in moving this work forward. And so when she sees this verse in this revelation— what we see as a verse now, of course, it wasn't versified at the time, but when she sees this mention of Eve in the Revelation, she really hones in on that and finds that to be really significant. It's, it's almost a confirmation or reward of, of her work and what she's been believing for years. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as it says in the article in, in her diary, she also writes, she rejoices in what a push this will be for temple work and how this will give the stamp of approval and to all these efforts that she's been making. There's a quote that you do give from her about the importance of learning. She said in this quote, all the desired inspiration in the world will not save our dead, she declared. We must also have information in order to consummate that noble work. How might this quote apply to the work in which we're engaged today, whether it be temple work or otherwise? Well, in context, what that quote is about is, as I was saying, this discussion among the Relief Society leaders about lessons on genealogy, which had been part of the curriculum for a few years. Sousa had been writing them. She'd been going out and teaching people how to do it. And then the feedback is, well, they're too complicated. We need to make them simple. Let's focus more on the spiritual part of the work and less on how to record names and how to fill out these forms and so forth. And she's saying, well, the inspiration part is really important. The principle and the doctrine, yes, we need that. That's important. But it doesn't do us any good unless we fill out the forms and take them to the temple and get this work done. And we need to know how to do both. And I think that's just as true today as it was 100 years ago, that we can sit in general conference and in our Relief Society classes or priesthood quorums or whatever and talk about the doctrine and how important it is to understand these things, and we can pat ourselves on the back because we have this great understanding of the spirit world that the rest of the world doesn't have. 
and all of that. But unless we nowadays get online and find, learn how to do the research and get those names submitted and, and do the work, it doesn't fulfill the purpose. Well, she was definitely a go-getter. Uh-huh. She accomplished quite a few things in her life, things we haven't even touched on. For example, the Relief Society magazine that she also started. She was involved with work at BYU, and she just has so many accomplishments that she's put together. If she was to have a building named after her, <laughs> what type of building would that be? What kind of memorial would be appropriate? You know, it would depend on what period of her life you were focusing in on. I think she would have answered that question differently at different times. But certainly by the end of her life and by the last three decades or so of her life, it would definitely have been about genealogy and temple work. So maybe the Family History Library over on West Temple ought to be renamed as the Susie Young Gates Memorial Library because uh, that would be a fitting tribute to her. In the essay, you stated that Sousa recorded the full text of the vision of the redemption of the dead, as it was called. So how does that record differ from 138? It doesn't. Okay. What that's referring to is that the Relief Society magazine published the same text that was published in all of the other other So that's probably the first place it was most widely distributed? Yeah, I believe it was published in the Improvement Era in December of 1919 and then in the Relief Society magazine in January. And January of 1919 issue is really filled with, a, with tributes to Joseph F. Smith that Sousa wrote. And they're wonderful. I would encourage people to look this one up. She talks a little bit about Joseph F. Smith and she never has enough superlatives to say how wonderful he is. Susan never has enough superlatives for anything. But then she says, but he would not want us to focus only on him. He would want us to pay tribute to the women in his life. And so then she goes on to talk about his wives. Four of his wives were still living when he died. So she gives these little profiles and tributes of his wives. And it's a really, really lovely and, and very interesting way of memorializing Joseph F. Smith that probably no one's ever seen before. Is there a place to find that online? Yeah, the Relief Society magazine has been digitized at archive.org, which is where the Church History Library has partnered with a major initiative to digitize so many of our sources. But if you just go to archive.org and search Relief Society magazine, you'll find it. Excellent. And that's the January 1919? Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, I personally am really looking forward to reading the biography on, <laughs> me on <too>. Susan Gates. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> She's an amazing, amazing individual that you're right. We, we don't really know much about her, and mm-hmm. we should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you for writing this essay and at least enlightening me. You've, you've helped one person. <laughs> Good. Well, I think it's a lovely story, and it's a very personal glimpse into this revelation that we wouldn't get otherwise. Yes. Well, so thank you again for coming in, and we'll post a link to that essay at the posting for this episode. Thank you again for coming in. You bet. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone. An LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS Church leaders, 
policies or practices.